Good evening. Praise the God. <coughs> I want to thank you all for letting me uh, come and, and, and preach to you. It is such an honor to be able to bring the word to such a, a wonderful uh, church family that has supported uh, me in, in my singleness to begin off, and then now marriage, which has been uh, overwhelmingly blessed. Uh, I feel overwhelmingly blessed to be a part of this family, and, and uh, I just want to thank you for that, and I want to thank you for coming tonight. Um, and to hear the word, it is, uh, it's so, so good and, and fun to, to go through the word together. Um, I'm just really thankful and appreciative for everyone who makes it out. It's, uh, it's an honor to be able to preach tonight. Um, and I just want to uh, thank you guys again for uh, um, allowing just this time of every Sunday night to come and gather again. It's always been a blessing to hear the word twice and to be refilled and re-energized for the week to um, hear the preached word and, and uh, it's a lot of fun and it's a joyful time. So thank you all. And tonight we're going to be talking about patience. Um, it's been something that I've been strongly convicted about um, in my my own life. I just have seen a pattern of impatience in a lot of things and that has led to a lot of sin that I see. And so I wanted to study it and learn it for myself and uh, hopefully be able to help um, myself and help others who struggle with the same thing of impatience um, and so that's my hope today my hope is that uh, we would see Christ we'd see God as the ultimate patient one with us who has uh, forbeared much sin in our lives before we came to know him and uh, that's that's something, something to just worship him over is his extreme patience um, in us and overlooking our sin uh, through Christ but I want to start off with a story. In the 1960s and 70s, Stanford University began an experiment led by a professor named Walter Mischel. This experiment was for children between the ages of three to five, in which the children were given a marshmallow, a cookie, or a pretzel. But under cir certain circumstances, the researcher would tell them, if you can wait 15 minutes, you will get double. So you'll either get two marshmallows, two cookies, or, or uh, two pretzels. But if you don't, then that's all you get. And so then the researcher would leave the room and would leave this child with this sweet treat, so to say, for 15 minutes to see if he could resist the temptation. And so during this time, a lot of the, the researchers observed that, s that some of the kids would close their eyes during this time so as not to look at the, the treat or cover their face with pigtails or they would simply look away so as not to be tempted or they would kick to kick the table, and then they would, they would do all sorts of things to get away from the thought of thinking about this temptation for the 15 minutes, so as to receive the ultimate prize of two cookies or two pretzels. And then the researcher would come in after 15 minutes, and either the child would be sitting there salivating, waiting for two cookies, two marshmallows, or would have some sort of residue left on their face because they couldn't resist. And the amazing thing about this experiment was not what they found and, and who was able to resist right away, but were the effects of follow-up studies. So those who waited for the reward, 10 years later they did a uh, uh, follow-up study, they were significantly more competent, those who were able to resist. And in this study they found out that these kids had higher SAT scores, and then they did another test later on to see that the prefrontal cortex was more active which is just uh, the part of the brain that involves 
uh, decision-making and planning. So this was more, uh, more active than those who waited for the reward. And also, the, the ventral striatum, which is another part of the brain, was more active, which is linked to addiction. So they were um, more able to resist being addicted to certain things. Simply by waiting the 15 minutes, they, they gathered all this together. So by being able to know the reward will come from waiting patiently, it showed to have a positive effect in just about all areas of life. Their mental capacity, ability to resist addictions, and overall success. Now as Christians, we have, we have a, a reward at the end of this life, but it's a little bit longer than 15 minutes. It's a lot longer. And it's a day-by-day wait. It's a patient um, the whole Christian life is a, is a process and it's a patience we're, as we're waiting to receive this prize at the end. But we, we know that at the end that there will be no more tears, no more pain, there will be no more death. This is the joy of our prize at the end. But it's not only that, it's also what we gain. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. So this is what awaits us, beloved, if we are patient and we wait on the Lord. Like he says when he says, I will wait on the Lord and in his word I hope, said the psalmist. Because at the end is a more, far more joyful reward than we could even fathom here on earth. At the end of our trek in this life as a Christian, we will receive the crown of life. But Paul tells us that an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And there are rules in this game. There is one way to receive the crown. And he says in James, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. We are under trial in this life. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So we must wait patiently. For we do not know when that time is, when our time is up, but we do know that we are called to be patient and that we're called to be faithful in order to receive this crown, to receive the joyful presence of the Lord where there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So let me pray as we begin and as we uh, dive into uh, some scripture um, that talks about specifically about patience and uh, and just that the Lord would bless this time together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, God, so much for, for being our Savior, for allowing us to see you, for saving us from our sins. Lord, we thank you for being a patient God who so dearly loves us that he sent his only Son that for those of us who believe we will not perish, but we will have eternal life. Lord, we thank you so much, God, for your word, for revealing yourself to us. Lord, we thank you for not being harsh with us when you should have been harsh with us. Lord, we thank you so much for being who you are. We want to give you thanks for being a holy, supreme, mighty God who gives us victory through your Son, Jesus. Lord,
Lord, help us to see him more clearly today. Help us to know who you are more fully today. Lord, let us let our joy be be in you, Lord. Let us see where we are not clinging to you. Let us see where we are not trusting in you. Let us see where we are impatient and unloving. And let us return to you. Let us return to you, for you are the giver of joy and love and patience. God, I pray that you would allow me to preach your word in a way that is honoring to you. Lord, I pray that um, everyone here, Lord, would be edified. Lord, I pray that they would walk away worshiping you. Lord, I pray that their hearts would be encouraged in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to be doing is, is, as I said, we're going to be going through patience and what patience is and why patience and and how do we actually achieve being patient and and how do we walk as people who are patient, how do we endure. But first we have to discuss I think the goal of Christianity, which is love. The goal of the Christian life is love in, in, in all aspects, and, and let me explain why. Remember, Brian preached in 1 Peter, and he w- came to the passage that says, to taste and see that the Lord is good is to be Christian. And I think he, he's absolutely right. That as we become Christians, we only become Christians because we taste and we see that the Lord is in fact good. Otherwise, we would not come to the Lord. We are not, in fact, coming to him in salvation. The Lord has revealed himself to us in such a way that maybe we didn't even see ourselves as one who hates God or, or a lover of ourselves until we actually encounter him. For example, Romans 5, 8, when I first read this, I didn't know I was a sinner until I read this verse. It says, but God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Or John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Christ became a curse for us to bear our sins. And it's only for one reason, for the sake of love. Because he loved us. That's the only reason why. And in response, we are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Because of what he's done for us, because of his love that he has shown for us in Christ. For showing us first off that we are sinners and then showing us that it was paid for on the cross. It was paid for by Jesus. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And he, he calls us to love others. Right? He says this is the first and great commandment that we should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But another is like this, to love your neighbor as yourself. We're called then to love others. First John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God is love. God loved us. 
we ought to love God, and because of that love, we ought to love others as well. So why do we go through all this trouble to tell you that if we're going to be talking about patience? Well, I think that biblically speaking, that love is the soil for patience to grow. Love is, is the ground comes and bears fruit is in the soil of love. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that if he has prophetic powers but has not love, he is nothing. If he has all faith so as to move mountains, he says, but without love he is nothing. Even if he gives his life to be burned, if he does not do it with love, he is nothing. But after that, the first thing that Paul says in his list is what love is. He says love is patient. Now, th- these sentences kind of translate a little bit funky into English because it says love is, and, and you can kind of get this mixed up with love being some type of adjective, like love is uh, a Hawaiian honeymoon. Like it's, it's like a, a description of something, and, and it, it's, it's something that it describes, it's, it describes as something. But really what it, what it means to say, it just sounds funky, funky in English, is that love does patience. It's an action. Love does patience. So the outworking of love is patience. And the soil for patience to grow is in love. So we must know what is patience. What is this patience? The actual word it translates to is long-tempered. But I wasn't satisfied with that because I don't, I don't really understand what that means. So I, I looked it up a little bit. And, and I got this little bit lengthy uh, description of what patience is. And I think it, it encompasses a little bit more, helps me understand. It's a, a long holding out of the mind before it gives room to action or passion. It describes a state of emotional calm or quietness in the face of provocation, misfortune, or unfavorable circumstances. So if you're like me, when you hear something like that, you're like, you're like yeah, that's great. That sounds awesome. I want that, but I don't have it. That is not something that I possess regularly. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that thinks that, and I'm totally okay with with that because I openly confess that I am impatient often. And I came to study it and and think about it, and I realized that patience is foreign to sinners. It is foreign to us as those who are me-centered, we are consumeristic living in this country. And it has even overflowed, I think, into how we treat church or the Bible. We come to it thinking about what can it give me today. And when something doesn't give you exactly what you think it should give you, you become impatient. At least I become impatient. I know I do. That's why Paul wants to make it clear that when he writes to the church at Galatia, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. These are things that are not of our flesh, but of the Spirit. So he's he's refuting them, saying, stop trying to produce these things that you cannot produce in and of yourself. Rely then on him who can, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. 
patience as we know it is a Holy Spirit-based characteristic. So therefore, we know it doesn't come naturally. But let me ask another question. Why? Why patience? We know it's a good character. We know it's good to be patient, right? Nobody likes an impatient person just by experience. You know, you get really annoyed when somebody else gets impatient. You get the, you get impatient. You get kind of, oh gosh, like I gotta I gotta do something, or you wanna. It's really stressful. But besides that, why biblically patience? Why why should we be patient? Luke twenty one verse nineteen he says, "By your endurance or patience, you will gain your lives." Romans 2, 7 says, To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. Hebrews 6, Do not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So why? Because without it, we will lose our eternal life. But with it, we gain eternal life. But what comes naturally to us is impatience. If you'll open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. part we're going to just briefly go through 12 and then we're going to go to uh, later on to 16 and then 17 so we're just going to spend a little bit of time here and then we'll go to our our main passage in Isaiah Uh, but Genesis chapter 12 verse 7 so it's the call of Abraham the Lord calls him and in verse 7 he says then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring I will give this land so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him That one verse tells us that the Lord appeared to Abraham and made this promise with him with his word that he will have an offspring and that to his offspring he will give this land, the promised land. And at this point, Abraham is 75 years old. And then in Genesis 15 again, God again remakes this promise to Abraham. Abraham says, He says, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So again, he's making this promise that Abraham will have a child. And he's, it will be his very own son. Now, 10, 11 years later. He's now 86, chapter 16, verses 1 through 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt 
on her mistress. Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So we see here at the beginning that that Sarai had borne him no children, and her faith weakened. She becomes impatient, if you will. But she saw an alternate way to make the promise of God come true. So she says, Hagar, you say, take her as your wife. It may be that she is the way that I obtain children. So rather than trusting in the Lord, as he says, as she says, I will promise you offspring and they will receive this land. Rather, they try to do it their own way. They said, you haven't fulfilled in the last 10, 11 years. Therefore, I will try a different way. Your way seems to not be working. And as they did this, she took Hagar, the Egyptian, and she conceived, but then she looked with contempt on her mistress. This sin led to the other sin. The sin of looking on contempt onto Sarai, who first gave her to be Abram's wife in the first place. And then Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. Even though this was her idea. One sin led to another, led to another. All in one, one moment. For 10, 11 years, they were patiently waiting. But in one moment, in one rash, emotional, not trusting in God's promise, they decided to act on an alternative plan. And then comes much more sin. Go to Genesis 17, verse 15. Now Abram is 99 years old. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90, 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Again, it was another 13 years that they had to wait patiently for the child of promise that they had. God is trying to test them. God is testing them 
to bring out this sin that is in their heart of impatience. Now they are seeing that they don't truly trust in God himself or his word. But as the Lord comes and as he does bring the child, as he bears the fruit of his word, Abraham begins to trust him more and more to the point to where he will sacrifice Isaac, his son, or go as if he were going to sacrifice Isaac, his son, because of the faith that he has in his word, in God's word. The patience that they endured grew their faith, although all it takes is one slip, and impatience can get the best of you. You could regret a moment that you'd regret for possibly the rest of your life. As we do know that, in fact, that that same time next year, Isaac was born. The promise was fulfilled. So we see that. Let's go on to Isaiah 30. Isaiah chapter 30. this point in Israel's history, they are being attacked by Assyrians, and they are on their way uh, down to Egypt, as you will see. They're being attacked, they're trying to find shelter, trying to find refuge, and it's not the fact that they're trying to find shelter or help, but the problem is, as you will see, is where they try and find it. Read with me in verse 1, it says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone, and his envoys reach hangs, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them. That brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. I want to look closely here at verse 2. This seems to be the main point that gets Israel in trouble is to, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. This is the main sin that they are dealing with. They are being attacked, and again, I want to emphasize that as they're being attacked from both sides, it is not wrong for them to seek help or refuge, but where they are seeking it is in a place where previously they had been enslaved to. As as you know, Brian has preached through the intense slavery that Egypt had on Israel and they made them embittered toward their leaders. I mean, at one point they took away their straw and told them to make just as many bricks. And here they are trying to go back to seek refuge, to, to seek shelter in that very place that brought them all that hurt and shame that they had before. That's the problem. taking refuge in a person 
mentioned in the empire. They think that if we just join Egypt, Egypt is a big, powerful country, the biggest actually, and if we get them on our side, then we will be unstoppable. But rather they forgot that the Lord was their God, and they were the people of the God of Israel. And that's what they needed. They needed to seek Him first, and seek refuge in Him, and help in Him, then maybe none of this would have happened. But for us, it was written down for us that we might know, that we might learn from this. If they would have inquired, maybe the Lord would have showed up. The Lord would have saved them and gladly been the refuge for them if they would ask for his direction. And oftentimes, I think this is where I find myself greatly struggling. As I make a decision without consulting the Lord, and I just assume that I know what's best. And I don't think twice about it. First thing that pops in my head, all right, let's do that. Sounds good. It's so foolish. Stubborn children who carry out a plan but not mine. Make an alliance but not of my spirit. They're making an, an alliance against God. They're making friends with the enemy. They're making friends with those who God directly opposes. And ask, without asking for his direction. So here, here are some of the characteristics of those who are impatient. It says that they are stubborn. Right? The people of Israel at this moment, God is calling stubborn children. We, we've all seen a stubborn child at one point or another. We can visualize a stubborn child, one who you can tell over and over again, you know, do not put your finger in that electric socket. And there he goes over there putting his finger in the electric socket. And they say, you are a stubborn child. I've told you over and over again, what to do and what not to do, yet you keep doing the exact opposite of what I say. Saying, I have told you over and over again, you, take, you seek refuge in the Lord and I will provide, I will take care of you as I have in the past. Do you remember Exodus before when I brought you out of the hands of Egypt who was deeply enslaving you, of which you could have no part in yourself of freeing yourself? I did that for you. Will you now go back to that? Will you now go back to that sin and make an alliance with them? Will you not ask for my direction as I lead you through the Red Sea? As I destroy those who seek to kill you? As I've told you you are God's people? Though you are weak, I am strong. Will you still go back to that sin? Will you still trust in yourself apart from me? It says they carry out a plan that is not mine. It says that what they do is, is they take refuge in the protection of, of empires, of, of those who seem strong in the sight of man. Instead, what they do is in 29, look back in chapter 29, verse 15. 
says, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who says, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding? This is what they're saying that Israel is doing. They're saying that in their actions, they're saying that we are disregarding God, that he did not make me. That's what the Israelites are doing. Verse 3 gives us some insight into the very consequences of that impatience. It says, therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame. That thing that you sought refuge in, that you sought help in, is going to be your shame. That you may know that that is not the Lord your God. And the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. They were trying to avoid both shame and humiliation, and they found both because they sought it not in the Lord. They were impatient, they did not ask for his direction. Impatience is merely a mirage of reality which the enemy uses to deceive people away from their true shelter. They say, look at this grand empire of Egypt. Look at how glorious it is. They're so strong. There's many. Trust in that. And it's deceiving because it's false. It has a mirage of power. But the consequences of their hard hearts go even farther. Move on to, ch- uh, to chapter 30, verse 11. This is what the Lord says to the people who have turned away. He says, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise his word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse. Its breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel, and that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the, from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. Because you have decided to trust in Egypt and to dismay the word that I've told you. Therefore, these walls that you build up for your refuge will collapse and it will shatter so ruthlessly that nothing will be left to your shame. So what is impatience? Impatience is not listening or asking for the Lord's direction before making a decision. It is acting impulsively without consulting with the Lord. And by not consulting, you are despising his word. Now up to this point, this is pretty bad news. This impatience has pretty rough consequences. But read with me in verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. 
and quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. That was the problem. The problem's not the Lord. The problem is that you were unwilling. Look again with me down in verse 18. It says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Blessed are those who wait for him. The solution is to wait upon the Lord in quietness, in returning and in rest you shall be saved. And blessed are those who wait upon him. Those of us who have turned away, it says in quietness, and in trust shall be your strength. That is a daily quietness and trust. And it is a daily returning and rest you shall be saved. It's a daily over and over again to wait for God. So blessed are all those who wait for him, for the Lord will be with him. So let's talk a little bit and consider the actual implications of this for us today, the impatience of us today. How does it come about? Some of us might struggle with impatience in being short-tempered. I struggle with being short-tempered in certain circumstances. Maybe it's just one thing over and over again that you have perceived as being the source of your anger or your impatience. A consistent thing that makes your blood pressure rise when it happens. And the only release comes from voicing your anger. But this is a lack of self-control. Those who do this do not ask for the Lord for direction. Maybe you think that you are the one that needs to take revenge, or maybe you perceive that you will not be taken seriously unless you do, in fact, get loud or blow up. This will finally get them to understand the hurt that I have received from that person. That's how my family responds to each other. Now they will finally listen and repent when actually the opposite is going to happen. They will oppose and find less respect for you. When James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, he also adds at the end of that, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The outburst that you have will not produce the righteousness of God, actually the opposite. You are giving a false impression of God, and that will push people away from God. The exact opposite of what you feel in that moment seems to be true, which is why it is a spirit-led technique. Have patience. Right? Everything in this world would be right if we considered the Lord. Right? A, a child would consider and would, in fact, obey their parents if they considered the Lord's direction before acting. Fathers would not provoke their children to anger if they took time to consider the Lord's direction. Husbands would consider living with your, li with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, if we took time 
to consider the Lord's direction before acting. Wives, maybe if you consider the Lord's direction, you would submit to your husband. Maybe if you're like me, you are discontent often, and, and you're always looking for that next circumstance to kind of fulfill that void, or you think that that's finally what's going to make you joyful. For example, when I was single, I thought that once I get married, then, then I will be joyful. Then I will be content. But rather, once you get married, then all of the sin that actually is behind that comes out more and more. And now I'm like, oh, now if, if only I get out of seminary, then I'll be joyful. Because that's what's holding me back to being content. Or if, if I find a job in the church, maybe I'll be joyful then, and all my problems will be solved. Or maybe it's when I have kids, then I will be content. But rather, it's always something else that provokes you to ask that question. You're simply impatient. Or maybe you're the opposite. Your impatience actually shows itself in being passive. Maybe you are a husband or a father, and it is your role in the house to lead your family in knowing the Lord and teaching them and discipling them. But maybe your mindset is, I've tried, and I've tried, and nothing seems to work. But you're not the person to blow up. You're the person to give up. When things get tough, my tendency is to give up. You're impatient in the Lord's timing, and you don't realize that everything is a process. And you, in fact, were not discipled in a night. You forget to realize the fact that you took time to understand who the Lord was. Maybe as a husband, maybe you and your wife, you, you've had a bad relationship or you're not on good terms at the moment and you haven't felt loved by each other, but none of you has persistently and patiently endured this, this, this kind of uh, resilience while still pursuing in love. Maybe you, you think, I've tried once, that's enough, but I'll push back. Well, that itself is also sin, that, that not trusting that in time, as you keep actively pursuing, that the Lord can, in fact, change hearts. But it's often not overnight. It takes time. It takes time. I can just see this pattern of, of impatience, of wanting to do everything as fast as I can. Uh, me, and, me and my wife were talking about this today, that... <laughs> we haven't we haven't even known each other for a year, and we've we've been married for about four months. That, that's 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 pretty crazy. <laughs> Just because we wanted to to get it done fast, we wanted to to as soon as we get married, things are gonna be better. And it's just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> that is that is not true. But <laughs> marriage is great. I promise. <laughs> Our marriage is great. <laughs> Uh, but through this, we see that Israel was disciplined by the Lord multiple times. And what I, wa- what I want to say is, heed the Lord, heed, heed these, these stories that are preached, 
and do not think that they are far beyond you. Do not think that this can't happen to you, that this is not you. The Bible says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let him who thinks he's above impatience, let him who thinks he does not struggle take heed lest he fall hard. The Lord opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let us not think that this is past us. Let us not think that we are on a whole other level of holiness, that this does not affect us, but actually the opposite. So you ask, okay, that's great, but what do I do? What do I do? I know I'm impatient. What do I do? I would say be impatient, but be impatient on the right things. Be impatient to pursue God for direction, not impatient to act without pursuing God. Be impatient in your, in your, in your search for God. Our problem is that we say that we will pursue God later. No, I, what I'm saying is be impatient with that. Do not let the hour pass where you will say, I will consult to God about this later. Rather, consult him now. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. So what do you do? You come to him who labors and are heavy laden. And you bring these upon him because he cares for you. It's not a burden to him. We be impatient in confessing our sins and, and realizing our actual sins. Be quick to look at the log in our own eye before we point out and blow up over that speck in somebody else's. I'm telling you, it is oftentimes, 99% of the time, when I blow up, it is because of my own sin. But I want to blame it on somebody else. And, and the, the part that really stinks is those who are closest to me get the brunt of that. Like, well, I didn't mean to do anything. Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, that guy took that. That was my fault. Be quick to confess. Be quick to realize. First John tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let that propel us to continue a life in that direction. Be impatient in reconciling your relationships. Don't let time pass in which somebody is at odds with you. Go to him. Go to her in reconciliation. We are ambassadors of reconciliation, Paul tells us. Even if there is nothing at odds with your relationship, the church should always gather together, always come together to pursue people. And I think the biggest thing is in Psalm 130, verse 5, and it sums up what I've been trying to say is, the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And how does he do it? He says, and in his word I hope. As we wait for the Lord, he has not left us empty-handed. He's left us with his word that we can hope in. Why can we hope in it? Because God has fulfilled over and over and over and over again what he says he will. Therefore, hope in his word. It's not that his word is going void, but it's that it is being fulfilled so that our faith might be brought up. Be quick to look to his word. 
Most importantly, be quick to listen to Jesus. Hebrews 12 tells us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, with patience, the race that is set before us. How? It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He endured the cross that you and I might not grow weary. goes on to say, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have not resisted your impatience to the point of shedding blood. Christ did, and he was without sin, so that you and I might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we could be freed from this. Christ did not open his mouth when he was beaten, mocked, and scorned, but he kept moving forward, trusting in his Father's word that you and I might grow, not grow weary, so we could be freed. Maybe we might say, we have been hurt. We have been. We all have been hurt. We, we feel a desire often to avenge ourselves. Are you saying, why continue to pursue reconciliation why should I pursue? They've hurt me. Well, consider Jesus. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. All the wrong that was on him, he entrusted it to God. He entrusted that to God, that he would judge that sin that was upon him righteously. That's how he was able to not revile in return or avenge himself. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That is us. We were the lost sheep. Let us continue to remember that, that oftentimes we forget how patient God has been with us in our wanderings. As many of us have spent multiple decades away from the Lord, not trusting in him, not living for him, not knowing him. But by his wounds, you have been healed and brought back into a relationship with him. Therefore, that person that so stubbornly pushes away from God, recognize that was you, and that was me. And what did you need at that time? You needed someone to love you and to show you who Christ was and that you were a sinner. You needed that to be revealed to you over and over again before he gave you the chance.
So let us leave with that. Let's leave with, with the remembrance that Christ patiently endured the cross, not sinning, though he had every right to it, leaving us an example that we might follow his footsteps. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we come to you so weak and so broken and having hurt others and been hurt by others, Lord, knowing that our impatience has led to many sin. Lord, we come to you looking at your patience as you have endured righteously the wrath of God for us. Lord, we come to you only by the blood of Jesus Christ. We come to you being those who have been, who were alienated from you, but who have been brought near by the cross. We, are, we come to you with those who have been only by grace have been brought near to you. And so, God, we want to worship you. We want to learn how to love you. We want to learn how to love others. Lord, I pray that you open up our eyes to see who we are, to see the struggles that we have of the impatience that we have of, of not consulting with God before we, we make decisions, before we act. God, I pray that we would, as a body, that we would encourage each other in pursuing your word to pursue waiting and hoping in your word. God, we cannot do this on our own. It is a fruit of the Spirit. So God, we ask that through your word and through the body of Christ, Lord, that you would lead us and you would help us and give us strength to wait and to oftentimes be sinned against without avenging ourselves. Lord, thank you for being a God of reconciliation. God, thank you for loving us so deeply that you sent your only son for us. Let us love him today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much. Uh, Y'all are dismissed.